Uh, four and a half years ago when we planted this church, we said that we wanted to be a church that planted churches. Look around. It is July, the dead middle of the summer. And it is disgusting outside, right? Anybody else? How humid and nasty. It's the middle of the summer and we're packed. Uh, and so we, we realize that we've got to start thinking about how to multiply in some way. And it has always been our, our goal and dream to plant churches this morning. Uh, and I want to say thank you for, thank you for being patient with these young men that we keep putting up in front of you who are trying to figure out how to preach. We are really grateful. Uh, Blake Price last week, he said for the first 10 minutes, I was, I was evaluating how I was doing based upon the faces of the people I was looking at and based upon what they looked like, I figured I was doing not very well. Right. And so be a congregation that is fun to look out at. Okay. Uh, and that's our goal because that is, it is scary to do this. It's even scarier to do it and look up and the people you're looking at to feel like they're must be thinking this guy's a complete moron, right? So smile, all this, all those things we always coach you to do this morning, Jeff Skipper, who's a friend, a good friend of mine. He was a youth, a teenager in my youth group when I was a youth pastor, gosh, a long time ago now, uh, he and his wife Marissa are here. They have two kids. Uh, and, and they're here this morning. Our elders are going to be meeting with him this afternoon because we're hoping um, to possibly hire him to be a church planter, planting apprentice in our church to maybe go and plant a church for us in the next year or so. So it's a big day for our church. Uh, and so welcome him when he comes. Again, he's a young guy. He's a little more seasoned. Uh, but lean in, take notes, smile, laugh, even if his jokes aren't funny. Those are the ways that you make a guy comfortable, and when guys are comfortable, then you really get to see what they're like because they're not thinking about what they're doing, right? They're just there, and they're themselves. So that's what we want. That's the kind of church we want to be. So, okay, what I always say, if you believe the good news of the gospel in your heart, please notify your face and smile and be energetic. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Mark, chapter 6, verses 32 through 42, and then 1 Corinthians 13, 5. The apostles returned. To Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. And then from 1 Corinthians 
Love is not irritable. This is God's word. Amen. Well, thank you, church. It's exciting to be here this morning with you. Uh, My wife and I, thank you, praise team, and Drew for the introduction. Definitely excited to be here with you all this morning, and I don't think there's a lot to say um, as far as introduction goes, so we're going to jump right in uh, to the scriptures this morning. And I've been following along with your church as you've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians and more recently, chapter 13. And as you guys know, Paul is giving characteristics of what love is and mainly what a heart that's been transformed by the love of God looks like. And in the process, he's actually condemning the Corinthian church for actually being unloving. He's writing against their self-centered spirituality. They have this divisive one-upmanship in the church, and now he's exhorting them to love. As you've noticed, if you've been following along and reading and listening to the sermons, the Corinthians were having disagreements about sexual immorality, spiritual gifts, idolatry, and ultimately, they were just bad at loving one another. They weren't gentle with one another, but most of the time were sharp and harsh and quick-tempered and very quarrelsome because they were very divided with this party spirit that was in the church, and they were actually easily provoked with one another. But today, we see that Paul tells the Corinthians and us that love is not irritable. And from this phrase, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the problem, what love isn't, it's irritable. And then the positive plea, if we flip that phrase over, what love is, gentle, and finally, the power to put this into practice. And as has been emphasized throughout this chapter, ultimately what Paul is pointing at is a person, as Drew mentioned earlier. And that's no different when today's passage, as we see this manifested uh, ultimately in our Lord Jesus Christ and his face, and we will get there. And if we were not to do that, we would fall far, far short. Uh, But be patient with me. We'll get there. So first of all, the problem, irritability. And what What I'd like to do is really kind of dig into this word and see what it means. As Paul goes through 1 Corinthians 13, he gives positive and negative aspects of love. So we get an idea, really a fully comprehensive view of love. And the Greek word behind this uh, word that's translated as irritable uh, in the ESV, and the Greek word actually means easily provoked or easily angered. Some say quick-tempered, exasperated, or cantankerous. So we could say, love is not easily provoked. Love is not easily angered. Love is not quick-tempered. It's not exasperated, cantankerous. Love is not touchy. Love is not ready to take offense. And I'm just going to be creative here and add some other words. Love is not grouchy. It's not harsh. It's not selfish. Love doesn't fly off the handle. Love doesn't get ticked off. It doesn't go on a rampage. It doesn't launch into verbal abuse. Love does not, on the other extreme, give the silent treatment. Hello, church. Uh, And so on. We actually see this same Greek word used in Acts 17, 16, when Paul's spirit was provoked within him. He went into the city of Athens. The city was full of idols, and his spirit was provoked. Same Greek word. So really, underneath this word irritable, we get this idea of provoked to anger. But as you see with the example of Paul in Athens, this idea of being provoked to anger isn't always a bad thing. That was actually a very good, righteous feeling inside of Paul. And so before we go too far, I want to say that there's such a thing as anger without sin. It's possible to be angry and not offend God. For example, uh, with our children, I have a one and a three-year-old. That happens quite often. Uh, I have actually an anger that's motivated by goodwill, not ill will. I mean, I want what is best for them. At times, I don't 
manifest it the right way. There's sin mixed in there, uh, impatience and so on. Uh, I can really relate to that in life right now. But as Christians, we're not to have ill will towards anyone, not even our enemies. We're actually called to bless them. And scripture tells us to put away all wrath and malice and anger multiple times. But we do see with Jesus a holy, righteous indignation that isn't provoked by petty, petty personal offenses, but actually when God is sinned against. Multiple pastors have said something to this effect, but B.B. Warfield kind of summed it up when he said that there are times when it would be sinful to not be angry. There are times when it would be sinful to not be angry. And so when do we see Jesus get irritated, angered, provoked, and uh, it's at failures to show compassion, at injustice, in the face of evil, actually at a lack of faith, we see Jesus get irritated. Uh, And ultimately, he's enraged at death itself. We see in John 11, when he approaches Lazarus to raise Lazarus, he is deeply moved, deeply grieved down within him. And that anger is what drives him to the cross to atone for our sins and to defeat death. So I wanted to get that out of the way early so we do have an idea that there is a good, just, righteous anger. But that's not going to be so much our emphasis today. But rather, we're going to focus on a sinful irritability or anger and a lack of gentleness and a lack of love towards others. So irritability is often our response to little frustrations in life and with people. And if we're not careful, it can blossom into much more than that. Robert Browning wrote this poem, Soliloquy of a Spanish Cloister. I'm not going to say that again. I've been practicing that all week. Uh, I really have. I nailed it. Uh, (laughs) it, and, And this poem is told from a first person perspective of this monk who lives in a Spanish monastery. And there's another monk in the monastery and his name is Brother Lawrence. And everything that Brother Lawrence does gets under this monk's skin. From the way he takes care of the garden and waters the roses and trims the myrtle bushes. Even the way he gulps his orange juice at breakfast gets on his nerves. Uh, Maybe you've been there. I'm kind of that guy in my house. My wife just looks at me and I know to tone it down. Uh, uh, So all of these things and sometimes Brother Lawrence walks around and he ponders questions to himself and the monk uh, mocks him under his breath, continually muttering things under his breath. And uh, when Brother Lawrence is finished uh, eating, he goes and washes his cup and his plate that has his initials on it and he puts them on his own personal shelf and it just drives this other monk crazy. And we may not admit that level of irritability, but surely you can relate to reaching a point with someone where it's not not the other person. There's nothing actually wrong with what they're doing. It just drives you crazy because we are easily provoked, easily irritated people. And folks, this is scary because what starts with little frustrations and irritations from others, when we harbor and dwell upon them, it actually grows into hate for others. Jonathan Edwards in his book, Charity and Its Fruits wrote, if anger be long continued, it soon degenerates into malice for the leaven of evil spreads faster than the leaven of good. If a person allows himself to long to hold anger towards another, he will quickly come to hate him. And so we find that it actually is among those that retain a grudge in their hearts for others week after week, month after month, year after year. They do in the end truly hate persons against whom they lay up this anger. Whether they own it or not, this is a dreadful sin in the sight of God. You see, the real spiritual issue is not how irritating other people are, but how irritable and unloving I am. And how I respond to others. 
One source I read said irritability is anger's trigger finger or it's a spiritual readiness to get angry. And we have a problem catching ourselves in those early stages of irritation and practicing self-control and actually reversing the situation into an opportunity to be gentle and love. And this passage was actually very convicting for me as I studied. Uh, it actually brought to light that I am very irritable. I'm sure uh, people close to me could, could uh, testify to that much better than I am. I can. But uh, as I was studying this, I did an experiment one day uh, if, for like 10 minutes, if that can be considered an experiment. And I wrote down a few things that were irritating me. Uh, you may need to try that. You may, you may surprise yourself. Um, I have a one and a three-year-old. Amen, parents? Uh, Jonathan wouldn't quit banging on my guitar and violently like pulling the strings as I was playing. And I I was getting irritated. Jonathan, stop. Uh, They were playing in the garbage can and beating on the garbage can and screaming and whining for no reason. And then they went to the glass door on the front of the house with some toy that's like a brick and just banging on it. Things like that. Later in the day, it was the way people were driving. And then there was a person in customer service that I felt was very rude. And I could feel myself getting easily provoked, easily angered. And I was actually ashamed when I looked back at how petty these things were. And really how ultimately most of them revolved around the people that I love most. Uh, I have found myself getting irritated if my wife is irritated. Makes no sense. Like she's having a bad day and she's really irritated and that irritates me. Uh, not good. I mean, I'm just being very transparent with you right now. And then my ultimate confession of how messed up I am. While I was studying the passage, love is not irritable. I got really irritated. Uh, I was, I was trying to to study at home, which you should never do, especially with a one and a three-year-old. And, uh, that was my first mistake. And the kids were just being loud and distracting and these things I mentioned earlier. And I just, I, I was provoked and easily angered and irritated. And then I had a moment that my life was just one huge contradiction at that moment. Um, and I was ashamed and I slowed down and I realized, wow, this is unbelievable. And I had to repent. Um, And the truth is, our reactions to these small things reveal some big, nasty things about us. Our reactions to these small things reveal some big, nasty things about us. And just two of those things is our selfishness and our unbelief. It reveals how selfish we are. Irritability is a sign of selfishness because you see, my real problem is not my kids or the drivers or other people, but it's that life is not going exactly the way that I think it should go. And these things are inconvenient for me. And it reveals that my goal is not ultimately to love others, but it's that everything go perfectly smoothly and predictably and easily for me. And when this doesn't happen, people around me suffer for it. Whether it's me rolling my eyes or making some huffy puffy noise that that's irritating, or I drive around the car and give them a stare just to let them know I wasn't okay with what they were doing. Uh, my irritability reveals my selfishness and that I am my own priority. And when I'm full of myself, I'm harsh with others because I'm so concerned with what I've got going on and nothing can get in the way of that. Then I'm not gentle or sensitive to the needs of others. It reveals our selfishness. There's too much me in my life. And this leads to demandingness in my life, that everything is out to serve me. I'm enslaved to self and not free to live for God and for others when I am easily provoked, easily angered. But Jonathan Edwards, in the book I refer to, said, love is opposed to all selfishness. Love is opposed to all selfishness. So not only does irritability reveal our selfishness, but it also reveals our unbelief. I become irritable when I don't believe the gospel and am afraid to become the gospel because practically I don't believe that death to self for the sake of others leads to resurrection in my life. 
because I fear inconveniences. I believe that if I protect myself from these inconveniences or these irritations and respond harshly to others like a, like a abused dog in a corner and just putting walls up around me and keep myself from pouring myself out for others and dying to myself, that I'll be more fulfilled, safe, and happy. And ultimately, that is uh, simply unbelief in the gospel and its disobedience. And I run from passages like Philippians 2 when it says, Count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I don't have the mind of Christ. That's when I'm easily provoked, when I'm walking that way, and my irritability shows a lack of love and a failure to live with the mind of Christ. I don't have that downward trajectory as we see in Philippians 2. Uh, Christ, who made himself nothing, nothing, becoming servant to all. And I think, I know, we can all relate to this. And we struggle with this in some form or fashion, whether it's your spouse, children, co-workers, family members, church friends, or probably all of the above, we are easily provoked to our own shame. And that keeps us from being loving because we're so full of ourselves. But we can look to the one who was complete love and who was completely non-irritable. He was never provoked in a sinful way. And he responded with gentle, selfless love. And as I mentioned earlier, Drew and Jonathan and Blake, really their main emphasis as they've went through this is that what Paul is describing here most is not a principle, but a person. Love is being personified. And Paul is pointing to Jesus. And rather than having a easily provoked, irritable, harsh spirit, Jesus was gentle. And loving with others. And so let's turn to Mark chapter 6 and see if we take love is not irritable and flip it over and see the positive aspect that love is gentle. And we see the story of the feeding of the 5,000. In Mark 6, Jesus had sent out the 12 apostles to spread the gospel, to spread the message of the kingdom. And in verse 30, we see that they return to Jesus and report what they had done and taught. And so we're going to read verses 30 through 44 again, if you will follow along with me. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He said, go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. 
So if we rewind all the way back to verse 30, the disciples get back from this mission trip, so to say, and they've seen people repent and people deliver from demons and miracles performed. And they're pretty excited from this missionary trip, although very exhausted. And so Jesus tells them in verse 31, because they are worn out, it said they had no leisure even to eat. He tells them ultimately to come away and rest a little while. And so they get in a boat and they leave and the disciples are thinking, finally, finally, we are getting away and we're going to have a moment only to have the crowd actually run on foot from all the towns and get there ahead of them. Don't do that to your pastor when he goes on vacation. Uh, If you run all the way there, you may deserve that meeting. You've earned that meeting. If you run all the way to the beach and beat him there. Um, But you can imagine how the disciples felt when they pull up. You've got to be kidding me. We just need a few minutes. And at this point, we see two very different reactions, one from the disciples and another from Jesus. And we're going to contrast these responses. First, the disciples' response. Verse 35 and 36. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. They were sick of it. Like us, they were irritable after a long day of work, right? Philip Ryken, in his book, Loving the Way Jesus Loves, says, If we want to resist the temptation to irritation, therefore we need to anticipate when we are likely to be physically or spiritually weak, and thus in need of special prayer and the help of the Holy Spirit. Missionaries should pray for grace after a season of fruitful ministry. Students should pray for grace the day after a long night of study. Fathers and mothers should pray for grace before they walk through the door after a long day of work. When we are weak, we can be strong only by the power of God. And I felt like that was a very practical, good word of anticipating uh, when, we, when we are feeling weak. And so the disciples tell Jesus, you know what, Jesus, tell the crowd to go figure it out for themselves. They've been gone a long time, traveling, doing work. They haven't eaten anything, and it's late. It says in verse 35, it was late. They'd have a day of it. They'd done their part, and now it was time to relax. Maybe a sense of entitlement, which is selfishness leaving, leading to a harshness towards others. Uh, I can relate to that. And remember, we're talking about thousands of people here that show up. So maybe their response sounds somewhat reasonable to us. But finally, after holding their anger as long as possible, in verse 36, they tell Jesus, send them away. And this is actually in the imperative mood. It's a command. It's not a passive optional request. Their frustration just boils over. And I believe Jesus, they, they very well could have interrupted Jesus in teaching. And you just don't do that. You can interrupt me. Probably not a good idea to jump out and interrupt Jesus. Tells them to send them away. And that is the response we see from the disciples. But on the other hand, Jesus' response, just very quickly in verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. We see Jesus respond compassionately, gently, lovingly to a needy crowd. And he's tired as anyone else. He's been teaching all day. That has to be exhausting. It is probably wanting and needing rest just as much as anyone else. And he has compassion on this needy crowd that the disciples found very irritating. So we see in Jesus that love doesn't push people away, but it brings them close. And with Jesus, it seems like especially needy people. His love was selfless. Riken said, Jesus regarded their need as more important than his refreshment. Jesus regarded their need as more important than his refreshment. But on the other hand, with the disciples who get exasperated, which resulted in a failure to love, the disciples regarded their refreshment as more important than the crowd's needs. 
And this is just one story among many where we see Jesus responding gently to what others found irritating. His responses are kind and tender and soft. He wasn't irritated by the requests of people. He slows down. He stops. He loves them, even those who do not benefit him in any way. Jesus was not seeking personal gain in his relationships. Personal benefit was not what motivated Jesus to risk being involved in the messy lives of others. I'm going to repeat that. Personal benefit was not what motivated Jesus to risk being involved in the messy lives of others. But I think we do see that with the disciples. Irritability isolates us from other people and it severs relationships. And if you embrace that easily provoked anger and irritability, you will isolate yourself and you will wither and actually regress in the faith because your relationship with others directly affects your relationship with God. But love, on the other hand, we see with Jesus, loves community. It wants to be involved in the lives of others. We see the disciples try to keep the children away from Jesus in Mark 10. And he actually gets angry with the disciples. He brings them close. The the, the children who could not benefit him, who were marginalized in ancient society very much, Jesus brings them close and loves them. Later in Mark 10, we see with Bartimaeus, who was blind, who sits by the roadside just calling out, and the crowd just rebukes him. He's annoying, and Jesus slows down and stops and calls him over and serves him and heals him and loves him with nothing to gain. He wasn't irritated and responds selflessly and gently. And Jesus, in his own self-description, which I find fascinating, you know, if you said, Jesus, explain yourself in two terms. In, In Matthew 11, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. He's compassionate, selfless, and he considers the needs of others above his own. And all of these people, one thing we see in common is that they are vulnerable and they are needy. And they valued the gentleness of Jesus. And you know what? Many of those people probably caused their own bad situations. And yet Jesus loves them and he's patient with them. And it's when you're vulnerable, you value gentleness the most. So at this point, how do we, who surely find ourselves probably identifying more with the disciples and their response, love like Jesus? The power to practice is the gospel. And there's three things we must do to love like this. One is believe. Secondly, die or become, we could say, and remember. So believe, die or become, and remember. Believing. The power to be gentle and loving comes from a supernaturally transformed heart. That's a phrase you've heard as you've went through this series. In union with Christ, you are given a new heart. Because listen, your struggle with irritability and anger is not because of other people. It's directly connected to your relationship with God. And without this gospel heart transformation, we're helpless to love like Christ. We are self-consumed, irritable, not gentle or compassionate people until that promise of Ezekiel 36 of a new spirit and a new heart being put within us. When we repent of sin and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, only then can you know God's love for you and you can truly selflessly love others. A supernaturally changed person with a new heart loves As you've heard before in the series, Jonathan Edwards defined love as putting your happiness in the happiness of someone else. And a love like this, along with believing, you must die. A Christian's happiness is in the happiness of another. And a Christian says, your problem is not an inconvenience or irritation to me, but it's a great concern to me. The problems of others are not not an inconvenience or irritation to the Christian, but they actually become opportunities to love. And I actually, I discussed this with my wife. I don't understand deep concepts until I discuss them with my wife because she's way smarter than me. Men say amen. Yeah, you better say amen. And 
you know, we talked and we said, yeah, that's right. Those things that irritate us and those inconveniences are actually the very opportunities to love, to be sanctified, to become more like Christ. And we said, that's so true. And then my wife does what she does very well. She said, so if that's the case, do you just want an endless string of irritable, irritating people and circumstances in your life nonstop? And I said, no, I'm not near that mature yet, but you know, I hope to grow to that point. Uh, and I didn't plan that conversation to go that way, but she challenges me. Love is not inconvenienced by the problems and struggles and mishaps and frustrations of others, but it drops what it's doing to put the needs of others before itself. Because usually the things that are irritating to us are the very opportunities to love and practice Christ-likeness. So for the Christian, if you're a Christian here, here today, the path to know God and his love for you better, the path to grow in the Christian life runs directly through loving other people. This path is laid for you in these inconveniences, which are opportunities to love, but it requires death to self. And I'm going to quote John Piper at length here. Uh, Stay with me, though. It's so good. Now, by nature, none of us likes to be interrupted when things are going well. We don't like delays in our plans. We all have a strong craving for a trouble-free life, and we tend to get irritated when our best-laid plans go awry. We don't like traffic tie-ups on the freeway when we have an appointment. We don't like overheated cars on vacation. We don't like for babies to cry through the night. (laughs) We don't like checks to get lost in the mail. We like it when life flows according to our plan and our pleasure. And when it doesn't, our nature is to be provoked and to complain and grumble and murmur and be angry and critical. Now, Paul says love is not easily provoked. So what becomes of this whole side of us that has this short fuse that is easily provoked? easily complains, easily grumbles and gets angry and easily criticizes? The answer is it must die. To love like this is to die. If I am to to, to love like this, something in me must die. My strong craving for a trouble-free life must die. My need for an uninterrupted schedule must die. My demandingness that frustrations and interferences get out of my way must die. We simply can't love the way Paul describes until we die. So only by looking to the cross will our hypersensitivity, our complaining, our grumbling, our critical spirit, uh, our anger, our seeking to give justice to those who offend us and those who ignite our irritability. Only by looking to the cross will that die. And so my question to you is, when life gets inconvenient and frustrating and when circumstances are not ideal, do you die and respond in love? Piper said, finally, not being easily provoked means dying to the need for no frustrations. And only the gospel can free you to do this, to joyfully live for the sake of others, free to be inconvenienced, turning those very into the very opportunities to love and your happiness being found in the happiness of others. And you can't be gentle with others until you die to yourself. The word I repeat more than any other word to my two sons, other than the word no, is, is gently. Gentle, you know, gently. They're two boys. Some of y'all can relate to that. Everything is like violent and hard and banging and swinging. Uh, but I play, I play with my, my one-year-old and he loves when I, when I nibble on his fingers and his arms and his toes. Some of y'all do that probably. And, and you know, I bite him and, and he thinks it's great and it all is good. And he laughs and laughs. And, and then he looks at me and he says, this game is awesome in his head. Surely that's what he's thinking, but your side of the game looks fun too. And so he just latches onto me. And he bites me. And so I'm yelling, gentle, Isaac, you know, gentle now. And I'm yelling this as if that's going to calm him down. You know, I'm bad at that. Don't yell. And that doesn't help at all. 
But Isaac, as a one-year-old, listen, he's not concerned with how I feel. He is wholly self-consumed, right? He, he, he's wholly numb to the other person. And we can be spiritual one-year-olds in dealing with others. We don't want harsh people handling our hearts. You want someone who is gentle, yes, who speaks the truth in love to you, but who is gentle in cleansing you and are concerned with uh, their response to you and the effect that it will have on you. So are you this way with others? Do you respond harshly or are you gentle? Do other people run when they see you coming? Are you that person no one wants to open up to because you're so harsh? People will be vulnerable and want to be vulnerable with, with those who are gentle. It is a breath of fresh air to have a gentle person uh, in your life and to respond to those irritations and inconveniences in a gentle, Christ-like, loving way. And you'll be gentle when you believe, you have that heart transformation, when you die, forget about yourself, and lastly, last of all, when you remember. This verse, love is not irritable, is ultimately a call to be like our Heavenly Father. In Exodus 34, God passed before Moses and he proclaimed his name and declared his character as we sang earlier in 10,000 Reasons. Uh, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then in James 1.19, James tells us, let every person be slow to anger for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But you will not be slow to anger if you're at the center of your life and at the top of your agenda. Because even the most basic things and other people will be annoying and irritating to you. And you won't be loving because you're enslaved to self. But only when you are in union, crucified with Christ, in union with him, are we free to be gentle, putting others before ourselves. So finally, on this last point of remembering, in your own life, how have you been treated by the Lord? Let us remember the just anger that we have provoked and how gentle the Lord has been and is with us. We have provoked just, righteous, pure, holy anger from the Lord. A trespass that justly deserves death and hell. And yet God has lavished us with love by his grace found in Jesus Christ. And all of my irritating sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus. Friend, listen. He has been gentle with you and he is being gentle with you. Just you being here today is evidence that the gentle hand of our good Lord is upon you. He's been tender with you, whether you're a Christian or not. He has been very gracious to you. He's been patient and he is kind all because his anger was satisfied on the cross of his son. And he's still gentle with us as we are wounded and as we wound others. Isaiah 42 says of the Messiah, of Jesus, our Lord, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You see, remember that you are, we are that bruised reed that he's been gentle with. And to to be gentle with others, you have to believe that Jesus has made atonement for your easily provoked anger and irritability and your failure to be gentle with others. And then when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will become gentle in the same way. Because the eighth one listed at the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. So the Lord has dealt very gently with us. And therefore we are to deal gently with others. In light of these truths of how gentle the Lord has been with us, hear now what the Lord has to say to us in the face of our wayward, hard hearts, our constant failures, our rebellious spirits, and our perpetual unbelief in the gospel. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. 
Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. You are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in exchange for you, peoples in exchange for your life. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And finally, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. So will you learn from him? We are recipients of grace, of a gentle hand, and his everlasting love. And now let us speak that into the lives of others, responding with the gentle love of Jesus. Because folks, listen, you will respond and live gently with others to the degree that you understand how gently you've been dealt with and and are being dealt with. To the degree that you understand how much grace you've been shown and to the degree that you get the gospel. So let us be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And as the call to worship said, put on then, holy and beloved, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Will you pray with me? Father, you are gentle and you are a compassionate shepherd. And your word says that you will tend your flock like a shepherd. You will gather the lambs in your arms. You will carry them in your bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Your son is gentle and lowly in heart, and he's gentle with us and our hearts that are prone to wonder. So this morning we ask by your Holy Spirit, give us hearts like yours. Give us hearts that aren't demanding. Give us tongues that are soft, not harsh, and yet still lovingly truthful, God. Pray that you would kill our irritable spirits which stem from being full of ourselves. And Lord, may we be so in communion with you, we're free from ourselves and to live for you and others. And only then will the gentleness and beauty of Christ be displayed in our lives. Again, help us to put away all anger, wrath, impatience, and irritability and to put on Jesus Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Uh, thank you, Jeff, uh, for leading us. Come and uh, meet he and his wife. That means you're going to have to come from back there up here, okay? But do that. Uh, and come and get to know them a little bit. Uh, I thank you for your patience, again, as I said, as we bring these young guys before you. Actually, tomorrow night, if you don't have anything to do from 6 to 8 or 8.30, some of our interns who um, we haven't necessarily put up on stage, they've been following along preparing sermons. They're going to give sermons tomorrow night, uh, just not in a formal worship setting. At 6 o'clock, if you want to come, it'd be great for them to have some people to look at uh, as they're doing that in here. So come tomorrow night, or you can call me and ask me about that, and I can give you information. But um, this is part of the vision and mission of our church, so we're grateful for you being here. Thanks for doing that. Uh, Okay, I don't know about you, but... um, the Christianity of most of my life went something like this. I know God has to forgive me because Jesus, I mean, Jesus died on the cross, right? Uh, but he has to be irritated with me. 
And yet the promise of the gospel is, is that Jesus is one for you, not only God's forgiveness, but he's one for your righteousness that is such that God looks down upon you and he doesn't, see any, he doesn't feel any irritation towards you. In fact, what Zephaniah says is that he sings a song of love over your life. And that's the promise of this benediction. I don't know about you. I, when I think somebody's irritated with me, it makes me ir- irritable. And if you think God is irritated with you, you're going to go through life irritable. But if you know, of course he's not irritated with you. He has, God, Jesus took his wrath so that all that's left for you is love. Then that makes you able to bear with one another. And to not live your life irritably, but joyfully in serving other people. So that's the promise of this benediction. This is the power uh, to go and to love uh, those in your life. So receive the benediction, then, as the promise that God looks upon you in love. Not irritation. Not exasperation. Love. So receive the benediction, then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.